What a mighty fortress is our God. And we're going to see the reality of that this morning as we dive back into the Gospel of Matthew. So open your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10. And we are in the midst, really, of a, of a challenging passage of Scripture. Uh, Matthew 10 and, is, and, and even on into 11 brings us some really challenging truth, some hard truth, um, but some beautiful truth at the same time. And uh, there's, there's principles that hold true throughout history that just show that God's word holds true. And like, one of the principles that I've seen uh, countless times throughout history as you read about it is the greatest battles, the greatest wars are, aren't first won out on the battlefield, they're first won on the inside of men. They're one in the hearts and the souls of men. And the greatest battles, the greatest dangers that we face as people uh, lead us easily into fear. And fear is paralyzing. Fear is debilitating. Fear is crippling. And when you're, you're faced with, with a serious, serious issue in front of you, in particular, death. Fear and the reality of it needs to be met head on. It needs to be recognized. The reality of challenges and, and, and even impending death in front of us should not be pushed to the side as we often like to do in our modern world. It needs to be met head on while not losing faith in final victory while keeping our eyes where they need to be kept. One of the uh, great uh, masters of, of history, if you will, uh, that understood this was the great Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister of England during World War II, who, when faced literally with the destruction of the British uh, nation in front of him, and, and, and they were overwhelmed. They should have lost the war. And Winston Churchill, when he was elected to be the prime minister, went to the House of Commons to give his first speech. And in that first speech that he gave, he stood before the other ministers and he said these words, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. He said, we have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I can say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air with all our might, with all the strength that God can give us to wage war against a monstrous tyrant tyranny never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word, it is victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory, there is no survival. He said these words, let that be realized. No survival for the British Empire. No survival for all that the British Empire has stood for. No survival for the urge and impulse of the ages. That mankind will move forward towards its goals. Here was a bold and courageous man who, 
who stood before impending destruction and doom and fear and looked it straight in the face and recognized its reality. There was great battle ahead of them. And we know the end of the story. As we look back 2,000 years previous, we see an even greater battle. And that, gra- that battle actually goes back to the dawn of time in the garden where sin came into the world and destroyed the souls of God's creation. The greatest battle is the souls of men, women. And here we have before us in our text the ultimate prime minister, the true prime minister, Jesus himself, sending the twelve out on a mission, a mission to preach the gospel of the kingdom to the remnant of Israel. And he said in verse 16 of chapter 10, if we review a little bit, he says these words, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master, It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, or a devil or a demon, as Pastor David taught us last week, if they call Jesus such, how much more will they malign those of his household? What comforting words Jesus gives to his disciples. He sends them out. Our passage today closely follows and continues this word that Jesus gives to his apostles. How then should the twelve respond? They're going to hate you, they're going to kill you, they're going to chase you, they're going to persecute you, they're going to malign you, they're going to speak evil of you. How do you respond? They're being sent out, lightly trained, barely equipped out to announce the arrival of the kingdom, to, re- to reveal the power of the kingdom in these bursts of miraculous activity. They're told that the faithful would receive their word, but the rest would not. And indeed, that they would suffer hatred and trials and betrayal and beatings, even death. They had a marvelous task. A blessed destiny. Become like Jesus himself. Be conformed into his image. 
yet they're sent out as sheep among wolves, knowing, knowing the weakness of our human nature, Jesus then continues teaching and exhorting them, encouraging them. He begins in verse 26 with the word so. Translations have therefore. Which is an interesting thought, isn't it? They're going to kill you. They're going to hate you. They're going to malign you. They're going to devour you. So, have no fear. What's your response? Don't be afraid. Verse 26, this is our passage in our text this morning. So, have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. And so everyone who acknowledges me before men, Jesus tells them, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father in heaven. Another difficult and challenging passage, but deeply encouraging if you can grasp what Jesus is saying to his disciples today and the principles that follow us to this day. Four principles that I'm pulling out of the text this morning. First, do not be afraid to boldly proclaim the truth. Secondly, fear God, not men. Thirdly, do not fear for your heavenly Father deeply cares for you. And fourthly, following Jesus is difficult and dangerous, but he is worth it worth it. That's where we'll end up this morning. So let's go to prayer once again before we go through these passage, these texts once more. Father, help us today. Help me today. Holy Spirit, have your way. Move in each and every heart. Lord, may my words accurately teach your word. Help me. Help each of us and do your work among us, in Jesus' name, amen. Point number one, do not be afraid to boldly proclaim the truth. Again, Jesus, after giving them this, this litany, long list of harsh realities that they're facing, Jesus tells them, so have no fear of them. Who are them? The ones who are going to hate you and chase you down and hunt you down and persecute you and eventually kill you. Don't be afraid of them. Why? He gives the first reason, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. You see, sometimes the right opposition, that's what they're facing here. The apostles, having been sent out to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, are going to be opposed. And that opposition oftentimes becomes a graphic display 
of the gospel. A great opportunity for the proclamation of the gospel. Ultimately, they're facing death, and martyrdom, we see throughout history, has proven to be one of the greatest opportunities for the gospel. And yet, it's anything but vindication from a worldly perspective. You get up and you shout something from the rooftop and you proclaim the message and they shoot you dead. Or they cut your head off or they nail you to a cross. And yet what Jesus is teaching his, 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 his disciples is that from a Christian perspective, it is vindication. As the old church father, once, uh, Justin Martyr, once said to, to those who were being persecuted and oppressed, he said, they may kill us, but they can never hurt us. Surely, the blood of the martyrs truly throughout history has been the seed of the church. And so this command to fear not, it's bold to the point of paradox. Have no fear, Jesus is saying, of the men who are going to betray you and flog you and kill you, God's messengers. Why? For when they have killed you, they can do no more. The evil things that they're doing, that are now hidden, that, that they seem to be prospering in, they will be revealed on the day of judgment. This part is eschatological. It's saying that one day the sacrifice of Christians, those who have laid down their lives, will be vindicated, will be shown that they were good and right and true and bold and beautiful. And the day when the Father reveals all things, he will shout to a renewed creation and every rational creature will hear him. So don't be afraid. It might look like you're losing. It might look like you're down. But don't be afraid. Keep proclaiming. Don't be afraid to stand for truth and to proclaim the truth. But the truth sadly is for many Christians, fear keeps us from proclaiming. It keeps us from the proclamation that is necessary for the advancement of the gospel. The acts of those who oppose God, church, will be shown for what they are. The truth will be out. It will be clear. And Christians have to be willing and ready to die. This is hard for us to understand. Because we live in the United States of Disneyland, I mean America. It's a playground, isn't it? We're the most prosperous, blessed people ever, and thank God for that. But that prosperity sometimes blinds us to the realities that our brothers and sisters are not only facing in the world, but that are even ever creeping up in our own nation and many Western nations. Christians must be willing and ready to die and to not be vindicated Yet, it will come, but sometimes only in the end will you trust God enough for that. Oh, that's hard for us, isn't it? Hard for us to look out and see the prosperity of the wicked, to see those who hate God triumphing or seemingly triumphing. Hey, we have the view of the psalmist in Psalm 73, where in verse 2 he says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. Why? Why is he falling and slipping? Because he says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
He's looking out and seeing the people of God trampled upon, and he's saying, I don't get it. I'm envious of them. I, I, they're arrogant. They hate God, and yet they're seemingly blessed. What is going on? He says they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. <coughs> their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I would speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. You see his struggle. Like I, I feel like at times I'm, I'm doing all of these things. I'm exerting this effort for your, for your glory, God, and it seems like nothing's changing. The bad are only getting badder and they're seemingly triumphing. What does the psalmist need? He needs a shift of perspective. He needs an eternal view. And that's what happens in verse 17 when he says, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until, until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. <laughs> he goes into the, place, the, the house of God. He goes to contemplate God. He goes into the truth of God. He goes to hear who God is and what he's done and what he's doing and to know his, his ultimate glory and power and strength and sovereignty. And he's like, oh, I get it. There's a day coming. You've told us over and over again in the word of, in, in, in your word, Lord. There's a day coming. All will be vindicated. All God's people will be shown to be vindicated. And you will win. This is the attitude we must have even today in the midst of challenges that we face. The judgment of eternity gives us great confidence in God's ultimate justice those who seem to, to cheat justice on earth will never cheat it in eternity. And so Jesus says, proclaim, proclaim. Verse 27, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. We see in the Gospels Jesus teaching his disciples in, in ways that are hidden. In the sense of they're not, he, he, he's careful. He, he's, he's the ultimate wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove, because he knows his time. And because he knows his time, he's careful not to just let it all out, but he's saying, guys, you're going to let it all out. I'm teaching you 12 of these things, and then you're going to go out and proclaim them to the world. The message of Jesus was gloriously public. It wasn't for a secret few. It wasn't to be hidden away in any way. There isn't one message for an inner circle and another for those on the outside. Those on, on the outside might not understand the message, but they can hear it. It's not to be hidden from them. And this is what Jesus is saying. You're going to be my messengers. You're going to be my mouthpiece. You're going to go in, eventually by the end of Matthew to the ends of the earth. They did that. 
We see, even towards the end, one of Paul, uh, Paul, one of God's messengers in Acts 20, 27, said, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I taught you the whole word. I gave you everything God gave me. Thank God for the apostles. The church is built upon the foundation of the apostles who wrote this New Testament, who delivered it to us, who we study and read it today, and we go out and proclaim it today. We teach truth. We teach the truth of the gospel. And when, when we teach the truth of the word of God, let me be clear, there will be opposition. Jesus' words to the men in these days that they were going to face great opposition still rings true today. Yes, by God's grace in America, we're certainly blessed to where most of us don't have to fear death for proclaiming Jesus Christ. But around the world, it certainly is, is, is still a reality. And that could even become a reality in our day or in the days of your children. May the Lord keep it from happening by his grace. But, but understand this, that when you stand up for truth, when you, when you stand up for absolutes, when you say there is only one way to God, and it's Jesus Christ, there is one truth, and it's his word. There's not many truths that, that are equal and many paths to get to God. There's only one, and it's through Jesus Christ. When you stand up and proclaim that people are not basically good that we're actually born sinners by nature, and we are sinners by our deeds and our actions as well. When you stand and proclaim, God created the heavens and the earth. When you proclaim that humans are created male and female, different by design. When you stand in any public square and say that boys don't become girls and girls don't become boys, that gender is determined by biology, by the plan of God, and it does not change. When you proclaim that babies in the womb are babies, not blobs, that marriage is till death do you part, when you proclaim that Marxist philosophy in all its forms is wicked, totalitarianism is evil, Darwinian evolution is vile, and life is not all about you and me and our happiness, it's about the glory of God. When you proclaim the truths from the word of God, people aren't going to like it very much. It's not going to make you very popular. There is absolute truth. And we must declare it. We must teach and embrace the whole counsel of God. We must realize that that means we often, humbly, must and have to embrace controversy. I say humbly in the sense of humbly meaning submitted to God's word. You see, if I'm standing up here declaring Brian's opinion, throw it in the trash. My opinion is, is no less valuable than any of yours. But if I'm declaring the absolute truth of 
of the truth source that is outside of us. And see, we've, we've made in our day and age humility mean you need to just accept somebody else's truth claim as valid as yours. There's, yeah, but they conflict. Yeah, it doesn't matter. I mean, relativism rules the day, doesn't it? When I say humble, I, I mean humble in the sense of we're not jerks about it. We don't, you know, yell and scream and belittle people, but we humbly, in a way that is submitted to God, have to speak the truth have to proclaim the truth. And in that proclamation of truth, it's unavoidable. If you're actually proclaiming truth, eventually you're going to run into controversy. You can't avoid it. In the day and age where the avoidance of controversy has become elevated as a supreme value, we should go back and heed the words of, of great men like J. Gresham Machen, who from 90 years ago wrote these words. He said, men tell us that our preaching should be positive, not negative. That we can preach the truth without attacking error. But if we follow that advice, we shall have to close our Bible and desert its teachings. The New Testament is a polemic book. It makes strong arguments. It's a polemic book almost from beginning to end. He says, some years ago I was in the company of teachers of the Bible in colleges and other educational institutions of America. One of the most eminent theological professors in the country made an address. In it, he admitted that there were unfortunate controversies about doctrines in the epistles of Paul but said he, in effect, the real essence of Paul's teaching is found in the hymn to Christian love in 1 Corinthians 13. And we can avoid controversy today if we will only devote the chief attention to that inspiring hymn. Achen says, in reply, I'm bound to say that the example was singular, singularly ill-chosen. That hymn to Christian love is in the midst of a great polemic passage. It would never have been written if Paul had not be, had been opposed to controversy with error in, in the church. It was because his soul was stirred within him by a wrong use of spiritual gifts that he was able to write that glorious hymn. So it is always in the church. Every really great Christian utterance, it may be almost be said, is born in controversy. It is when men have felt compelled to take a stand against error that they have risen to the really great heights the celebration of truth. Paul wrote to his dear young Timothy, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Not only do we have biblical warning, but we also live in a day and age in which relativism is the air that we breathe. And therefore, if you say and teach what is the full counsel of God, you may have to bear some consequences. So friends, have courage. Do not be afraid. Opposition is a problem, but it's not just a problem, it's also a stage. What stage has God placed you on? It's an opportunity to proclaim the good, the true, the beautiful in a world of the unacceptable, the deceptive, the hideous.
It's an opportunity to bring, bring truth, and in bringing truth, you bring life. And yes, it will often be rejected. And you will get reviled. But may we never stop giving life. We never cower down, offering the gift of life, proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ and his gospel that gives life and hope. One of the, one of the biggest things that I hear most often from many Christians, the big, the big fear that we have in proclaiming truth like this is, I, I don't know enough. I'm just not educated enough, I, or I'm not a good enough speaker. I, I can't talk to people well. Friends, it's, it's not our eloquence nor our intelligence that saves. Think about it. Look at the world today. Since when do clear and convincing arguments win the day? <laughs> the gender issues should show us that. Proclaim the truth. Do so in love. Do so because you care for people, not because you want to win an argument. Just on a side note, your proclaiming is more than posting something on social media for all the people who agree with you to like. <laughs> and all those who don't agree with you to defriend you. <laughs> it's about much more than that. It's about loving people enough to get into their world Share the truth with them. The power that changes lives is not in you. The power is the foolishness of the gospel. As you proclaim it, as you open your mouth and proclaim it, God uses his word and the spirit does his work and the miracles happen. Do we believe that? Do we trust his word to be powerful? Proclaim the word of God. Don't fear. Proclaim truth. Secondly, fear God, not men. Verse 28, the second, do not fear. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. This is an echo, as Matthew often does, as we've seen throughout his gospel of Old Testament passage, if you look at Isaiah chapter 8, verse 11, as the Israelites were facing the Assyrian invasion, Isaiah was proclaiming some things that was really creating a separation among the Israelites themselves. And in his proclamation, he was showing, much like Jesus is sending his apostles to do in this situation, he was showing who the true Israel was. That all of these people who are worshiping idols, just because they were born Jews doesn't mean they're his people. The people of God were the people of faith, the people of trust, the people of obedient faith. And Isaiah is calling out the remnant, just as Jesus is calling his disciples to go out and call out the remnant. And in chapter 8, verse 11, it says, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk, away, walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. 
And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. You got all these these false prophets of Israel and all these people who are saying these things and prophesying these things, and Isaiah is saying, that's not of God. Don't believe them, don't listen to them, don't fear them. (coughs) Verse 13, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. A trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. What is Isaiah bringing out here in this passage? He's, he's letting the people of God know that God consciousness redefines priority. See, God's remnant is not without fear. In Isaiah, they're again facing destruction by the Assyrian invasion. But Isaiah is letting them know, for God's people, for his true people, the whole approach to this threat is different. The way they see it, God's people dare not overlook God. They see God at work actually in all of the events that are around them. And in fearing God, they stabilize themselves. What does this fear look like? Verse 13 says, the the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. In other words, don't, just, just dare to treat God as God. How about that? Don't respond to life in a way that makes God look helpless and and weak and worthless, as if he's not the rock that he says he is. Living emotionally as if God were not really our Savior is practical atheism. If God is God, then he's all that finally matters. And Isaiah is saying the remnant understands and respects God enough to live that way. To boldly and confidently trust Him. And how we treat God, how we respond to God, determines how we experience God. According to Isaiah, either as a sanctuary, as a refuge, as a hope, or as a snare. A snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Every one of us will experience God in one way or the other. If we have a God consciousness, if we live quorum Deo before the face of God, if we take him into account as God, we will enter his sanctuary and experience his presence, his protection, his strength. But if other things move us, if other things compel us, well, God's not just going away. (laughs) We end up colliding with him. And tripping over him as a snare. See, when we come to the New Testament, come to the Gospels, like Matthew, we see that God is the most unavoidable and the most dangerous in the person of Jesus Christ. He himself said in Matthew 21, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. 
See, some people dismiss the gospel as irrelevant. They, they stumble and fall and are broken. But grace, grace of God awakens the remnant to a trembling faith. That God is a God who punishes. That we are to fear him, Jesus said. And we like to change words a lot. And there certainly is appropriateness to, to understanding the fear of God as awe and reverence. The context that Jesus is using this word here, he's literally saying, don't fear men who can just kill you. That's the worst that can happen. Fear God who not only can kill you, but cast you into hell for all eternity. I think it's a little more than just awe and reverence in that place. It's, it's actually fear. If you read your Bible and go through it, you're going to see countless times where people come into the presence of God and they are trembling with fear. They're shaken. They're on their faces like, don't kill me. Oh, I'm not worthy. Yes, there's an awe and a reverence, but there's this, there's this shaking and trembling and quaking from a fear. And that's not necessarily bad, folks. How many of you were, that hell was scared out of you? <laughs> Literally, like in my case, as I was a little kid. I was scared to death, and it drove me to the arms of my Savior. How many your children? Think about Dad. I've had, we've, we've sat around our dinner table a few times, and now that my kids are older, they, we've had talks about when they were little, right? And I think it was Will. Can I tell on you? Yeah. Will, Will was like, one time we was talking, he said, he says, Mom, honestly, you really didn't spank that hard. <laughs> like, like, when you spanked me, I, I, like, pretended it hurt, but it really didn't hurt that much. But, man, when you said, I'm telling your dad, I, I, I started shaking, right? There was this healthy fear of dad of, like, I know what my father can do. <laughs> and that did produce good results in our children's lives. And as they grew older, as they matured, that fear translated into different things. Honor, respect, love, relationship. We are to fear the God who judges, punishes. There's, there is something worse than physical death. It's eternal death. And so Jesus is telling his disciples, when it comes to proclaiming the truth of God's word, don't be afraid, because all they can do is kill your body. Which that's quite a statement, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, how many of you want to die today? Not me. But do you see his point? There's something so much worse. Yes, they can kill your body. That's the absolute worst case scenario. And I like worst case scenarios. That's how I function. When I have a problem in my life or whatever, I like, I want to know what's my worst case scenario. Because then I can put myself in a mindset to, okay, I can handle that by the grace of God. Worst case scenario, they kill you. And you go to eternal bliss with Jesus. It's the worst that can happen to you. Don't let the fear of men 
keep you from proclaiming. Let the fear of the thought of, oh man, I, I need to proclaim, I need to live for Christ because I'm his. Because I'm not a non-believer, I'm not going to hell. I need to display that in the fruit in my life. Don't fear death, Jesus is telling them. Yes, the fear of death runs strong, but we are to overcome the fear of death with the fear of God. Spurgeon said these words, there is no cure for the fear of man like the fear of God. You want to become bold in your proclamation? Keep your eye on your father. From his prison cell, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was hanged by the Nazis, wrote these words, those who are still afraid of men have no fear of God. And those who have fear of God have ceased to be afraid of men. Choose this day whom you will fear. Thirdly, do not fear for your heavenly Father deeply cares for you. <clears throat> we go from fearing God in the sense of I don't want his judgment, I want to honor him to now growing in maturity of that relationship, to understanding him as, as a father who deeply cares. Verse 29, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? That's pretty cheap, by the way. In the marketplace in ancient Israel, you could go and buy different things, and the, the poorest of the poor could buy sparrows for the sacrifices. And he says, And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Isn't that astounding? How many sparrows are in this world? How many millions and millions, I don't know, billions? Who knows? How many sparrows are out there? And Jesus says, your father won't let one fall to the ground apart from his awareness. Not only his awareness, his willingness. Not only his willingness, his provision. His sovereign care. Verse 30, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. See, the disciples of Jesus are to understand that, yes, God is a judge who punishes those who don't trust him, but he's a father who cares and provides for all his children. This is the third time Jesus has repeated the admonition, don't fear. And in this case, he's saying, don't fear abandonment. Your father is with you. And he cares. Jesus shifts from eternity to God's lesser creation. That God watches over the life and the death of, of, of these insignificant birds that have no value, a penny worth. He cares for matters as inconsequential as human hair. Therefore, he surely cares for his people. Here's something that I've taken note of that made me think. If, you, if you're going to count the hairs on a head, <clears throat> you have to get really close. And to know if a hair falls out, which a few of you might have had a few hairs fall out over the years, right? Some of you say, well, mine are easier to count than, than others. <laughs> but he knows. And if you're going to 
know when a hair, one hair falls out so you can keep your count, you have to stay really close. See, what Jesus is saying is God is the ultimate micromanager of his world. Every detail. Go through things in life and you think they're insignificant. Every detail of your life is known by God. And he cares. He provides. See, the temptation for a disciple is to think, I'm getting reviled, I'm, I'm hated, I'm, I'm getting all this opposition. Is God with me? Does he care? <clears throat> Jesus says, you're worth much more than a sparrow, and there's not one sparrow that falls and dies without him knowing. That God knows every single thing about you. Deeply cares, and he will provide everything you need. So what is... <clears throat> What is the re response to such care? In verse 31 again, fear not. But it's, it's having a whole life and a whole attitude of life that confesses Jesus Christ. Not just your words. It's making sure that you are to proclaim with your words, right? You, the gospel, I mean, what was it? I, I think there was something attributed to uh, St. Francis, right? When at all times preach the gospel, when necessary use words. I think that's so silly, according to the Bible. I understand the gist of it, but it's, it's the reverse. It's not just be quiet until you have to speak. It's speak the word of God. Talk to people about Jesus. Proclaim the goodness of Jesus. Disciple your families, your children. Have lunch with your coworker. Tell your neighbor. Yeah, but they're going to not want to be my friends anymore. That's what Jesus is saying. It's okay, but tell them you don't know what he's doing behind the scenes. He's using you, and, and, he's, and, he's, and, he's, and he's giving you courage to spread his mission and his word around the world. So, so acknowledge it. Speak with your mouth, but then also have a life that backs up your words. So you don't go to, to, to your neighbor and tell him about Jesus, and the next day he sees you cussing out your wife at home. You, you, your life, your, your words proclaim him, and your life acknowledges him. And Jesus says, when you do that, when you, I mean, listen, Spurgeon says it better than me. Listen to the words of Spurgeon. What Christ is to you on earth, that you will be to Christ in heaven. I shall repeat that truth. Whatever Jesus Christ is to you on earth, you will be to him in the day of judgment. If he be dear and precious to you, you will be dear and precious to him. If you, if you thought everything of him and you couldn't stop speaking about him and telling people in your life honored and glorified him, he's going to think everything of you. Yes, it's dangerous. Yes, you're going to be hated. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, some of you might even die in the process. But Jesus is worth it. He's, of, he's of, of, of ultimate worth and value, so cast your whole being onto him. Everything you are, everything you think about, everything you value, treasure him above it all. Don't live in fear of human wrath. Publicly acknowledge 
that you fear and love God by trusting Him even to the point of risking this bodily life. When you do, you prove that you trust your Father in heaven. Incredible thing. It's also convicting, isn't it? Because I'm sure, like me, you can think of many times where you thought, I'm not living like that. I blew it here, and I blew it there, and I blew it here. And I find comfort in understanding that this, what he's speaking of here, is a lifestyle, not one time. Otherwise, Peter would not be in heaven. <laughs> because he dropped the ball several times. Jesus closest, the one closest to Christ, denies him three times because he's afraid of a little girl. You're one of his. No, I'm not. Bleep, 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 bleep. Jesus, Jesus doesn't come and start whipping them. Jesus comes and cooks them breakfast with the resurrection. He looks at him, he's like, Peter, do you love me? You know I love you, Lord. Go feed my sheep. Grace. There's grace. And when you glimpse grace, may you be transformed to, to wanting to live every part of your day for the glory of Christ whom you treasure. <clears throat> All the band to come up and prepare as we get ready for the communion here in just a few moments. The Bible says do not fear about a hundred times, making it the most common command in Scripture. God often tells his people to reorder their fears. Listen, you're going to have fear. Fear is not the absence of being afraid, or, or excuse me, courage is not the absence of fear, but it's it's moving forward in the face of fear. So be courageous. Have courage. Step into the difficulty, into the danger, and speak the truth. Jesus is worth all. He's worth dying for. And if he's worth dying for, he's most certainly worth living for. Most of us will not have to face martyrdom. Lord willing. You don't worry about going out of this place and having the secret police coming in and taking your life. Sometimes living it out, I believe, can be harder than dying for it. Winston Churchill, again, I told you at the beginning, said, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Friends, that was for a nation on earth, a kingdom of man. How much more? How much more for the kingdom of Christ? Should we not be fear, have fear? Should we be courageous? Should we, as we sang earlier, let goods and kindred go? This mortal life also, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still because his kingdom is forever. I'm going to sing a song in preparation for communion.
that every time I hear it, it makes me cringe a little bit. It's an old hymn, which is the reason I love. I love the new hymns and songs too, but I love a lot of the old hymns because they say things that a lot of modern writers don't write about anymore. The life of discipleship is a life of, of dying. Jesus, I my cross have taken all to leave and follow thee. Destitute, despised, forsaken. Thou from hence my all shall be. Perish every fond ambition, all I've sought or hoped or known. Yet, how rich is my condition. God and heaven still my own. May it ever be. Father, help us now. Help us to not fear. Help us to have courage. Let us boldly proclaim truth. Let us fear God, not men. May we understand that we don't have to fear because you are with us and you provide everything we need because you care. And you are eternally worth living and dying for. As we prepare for the communion now, Father, pray that you would touch every heart, awaken our souls once again, seeing the beauty of the gospel of Christ, that he came, lived the only perfect life any man ever lived, died a sacrificial death, the death that I deserved because of my sin. He had no sin, and yet he took all of mine upon himself, and he died there. And he rose again on the third day, forever conquering and breaking the power of sin, death, Satan, and hell for all who believe. So now we can live fearless, courageous lives. We can proclaim truth. May we take up our cross as we prepare to receive and celebrate this beautiful gift of communion, Lord. Help us to understand, grasp, see you clearly. In Jesus' name, amen.